UpperCervicalDocs.com. I spent B.J. Palmer's last Christmas with him. I was down in Sarasota as the team trainer for the the, the East-West gymnastic team. They were getting ready that year to go to Italy for the uh, Olympics. Okay. And um, they were training real, real hard. And Christmas Day, uh, everything was rather quiet, and they, they had no training for the day. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to check with BJ and see if he's available. I'd like to say hi to him. And so I called and Sheriff's come on over right now. And uh, talk about change. I can, as I was leaving, he looked so small to me. He come up to me and he took a hold of both of my lapels and he pulled me close to him and he gave me a hug and he said, Larry, I wish I could change, but I can't. This is Dr. Paul Hambrick of UpperCervicalDocs.com, and this is an interview I did with an 89-year-old retired upper cervical chiropractor named Dr. Larry Allen. Dr. Allen had an accident at 12 years of age that left him paralyzed for almost two and a half years. He was found by Dr. John Grostick, who adjusted his atlas, and within seconds he had feeling in his legs, and in a short time after that had enough strength to walk. He decided right then that he wanted to become a chiropractor, and he went to Palmer and graduated at 18 years of age. In this interview, Dr. Allen tells about his early days growing up in Michigan, his paralysis and experience with Dr. Grostick, his experience with B.J. Palmer, some truly miraculous cases he was involved in, presenting chiropractic to the United Nations, his industrial pre-screening program that he developed, and he even shares how he was the original Culligan Man's chiropractor. Dr. Allen is truly a treasure who has lived a lot of upper cervical chiropractic history, and I really enjoyed talking with him. This interview is in two parts and is around 80 minutes long. I hope you enjoy it. Good morning, Doctor. Hey, Dr. Allen. How are you? Well, I'm up and about, and at my age, if you're up, you're doing good. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> So how are things with you? Oh, things are going really good. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm so far behind the time now, I don't even know what's going on. My, but, my grandsons come over here, and, and uh, it's just amazing how far behind the time I am. Oh, well, that's okay, you know, because uh, I, I'm, I'm assuming that, well, I think I know what you mean. However, the one thing that doesn't change is human nature, and you're way ahead of the times as far as that's concerned, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, it always always reminds me, I spent B.J. Palmer's last Christmas with him. Mm. I was down in Sarasota as the team trainer for the, the, the East-West gymnastic team. Mm. They were getting ready that year to go to Italy for the uh, Olympics. Okay. And uh, they were training real, real hard. And Christmas Day, uh, everything was rather quiet, and they, they had no training for the day. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to check with B.J. and see if he's available. I'd like to say hi to him. And so I called, and sure, come on over right now. 
and uh, talk about change. I can, as I was leaving, he looked so small to me. He come up to me and he took a hold of both of my lapels and he pulled me close to him and he gave me a hug and he said, Larry, I wish I could change, but I can't. Hmm. What was he referring to? Just the, 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 his purity of chiropractic to keep it wholesome and, and not let the elements infringe with, uh, well, modalities and, and, uh, I suppose vitamins, uh, I'd tell, he was talking about all of these different things. And uh, it was interesting when I got to his house, he had two large Devonports facing each other and uh, a big picture window just beyond. You could see his boat out in the slip. And he had an eight foot piece of plywood Maybe it was, uh, oh, six, eight inches wide at least, in a clip on one end, and here he had uh, the yellow paper that came around full spine x-ray at the time, 36-inch film, and he had that oh, whole stack of it. And he'd sit there on the Devonport, and writing as, as he wrote, he'd pull the board forward, so that he had a new space to write on, and he'd get to the end of the board, and he'd just flip the page off and uh, slide the board back and then write some more. And uh, he was such a prolific writer, uh, very intelligent. And he came up, of course, all the green books were really something, but I found while I was there that he had well, it was a hallway that went down past four bedrooms. And he took me down there to show me how he had the Fountainhead News laid out a year in advance. But in the hall, I couldn't help but notice, and I stopped him and I said, PJ, are all of these binders, it was just like a, a library, rows and rows and rows of these binders and they were all manuscripts that he had written that have never been published and never seen them since either. Wow. Really something. If half of them wasn't any good, the other half was sensational. Yeah. 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 Well, I grew up born raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan on a farm that my grandfather Alan had homesteaded uh, when he came from Scotland, he came across the down the, the Potomac and, and, uh, and the St. Lawrence and, and uh, wound up with his oldest sister in Ann Arbor. He had a buttboard wagon and a gray dapple, great horses. And uh, as a, he was a, a Stonemason. He knew he could pick up a stone and just crack it, and it would always be just the way it should be. And I could pound on a stone with a sledgehammer and not, never get it to crack properly. But anyway, <clears throat> my father, after World War I, uh, went back to the farm 
and that's where I was born, along with a brother who was born just the year and a half before me, just before my father went overseas in World War One. And then I had two sisters follow me, and um, my father worked at the post office, continuing, literally continuing his uh, military with the government, you might say, getting a government job, his military time counted. And the post office income uh, actually supported the farm and the farm supported the family. Mm. We were we were dirt poor people. Uh, nothing really to brag about at all. Anyway, uh, I used to follow my father when I was big enough to sell magazines, and I'd follow him on his route. And at this particular time, I was about 12 years old. Uh, he was, had the territory around the University of Michigan Hospital and, and part of the university campus. I had Collier's and Saturday Evening Post that used to sell. I think they were a nickel then. And I had a sack on across my neck or down the shoulders on both sides. One, one for Collier's and one for Saturday Evening Post. And in delivering these, it was a good idea to be just behind him when people would come out to get their mail. I see. Hi, that's my dad that just brought that to you. Hope it's good. How about a magazine? <laughs> and uh, there was one lady, a maiden lady, and Dad said, "Now you start talking to her. She's going to try and pump you about anything about the family. So don't you dare! I'll wring your neck if you ever divulge any family secrets." <laughs> so this particular day, sure enough, she came out. And she had the dime in her hand and about half presenting it to me. And I'd already taken out the post and, and, and Collier's and she wouldn't quite give it to me. Kept asking so many questions. And I got a little tired. Well, I didn't realize she'd waxed her front porch. And uh, I kind of leaned to a side next to one of the pillars by the steps and my sacks fell behind me in that position and it threw me over backwards and I went flying over onto the ground and I couldn't move mm. and uh, no matter what I did I couldn't move I didn't hurt I was kind of numb and this was straight out the front door of the University of Michigan Hospital where I had two uncles that were te teaching in medical school there. And with a very short order, they had me in the hospital. And uh, I was getting the best attention with my uncle, uncles and assistants. And finally, they, they just didn't know what to do. For two years and four months, um, I just couldn't walk. And my legs kept getting thinner and thinner. The lack of use, you know. You Not were, any really severe pain at all. You were how old at the time? All this time. How, how old were you at the time? Twelve. 
12, and so for uh, it, it happened at 12, and so for two years you didn't yeah, have two user. years and four months. <laughs> My family one Sunday decided to go on a picnic on the Huron River, and uh, just outside of Ann Arbor, a little ways. And this was at a what they call the Del High Crossing. There would had been at one time uh, two or three mills that used the power of the river to operate. And a cyclone or tornado or something had come along. This was like during World War One, And it wrecked both of these buildings. And so all this debris was laying in the river yet, some the big wheels and everything, and, and that dammed up a lot of water, which made it a nice place to go swimming for people. And my family decided they were going to have a picnic and go swimming. And what to do with me, of course, my dad finally sat me on the bank right near the edge of this little waterfalls and with a fish pole and some helgramites, which are found under rocks as a rule, and uh, had baited the, the hook and he threw it in the water and, and he went on swimming with the rest of the family and all of a sudden I got a fantastic big old bass on there and it was I wasn't about to, to let go it knocked me off my balance I was just sitting in the rocks and I couldn't use my legs for strength to stop I could have dropped the pole and kept from rolling but I started rolling down the bank and along came a young fellow with his new bride and uh, he saw what was going on and he saw that I was going to be going in that river and I wasn't about to stop. He pulled the canoe up and grabbed a hold of me and he said, what's the matter, you kid? How come you're not trying to stop from falling in the river? I said, you, that bass, I wasn't about to lose the bass. And he says, what's the matter with your legs? You look like just bone with skin wrapped around them. And I told him, and finally he said, where's your parents? I said, this woman, I want to talk to them. Why? Well, I just finished Palmer College, and he got had his bride with him, and I just opened up my office, and I want to tell him about the wonders of chiropractic. I said, that, that, that's quactopractic, isn't it? <laughs> I had five uncles that were MDs, and Two of them had seen to it that I had the best medicine that was available at the time of the accident. I'd been to the Cleveland Clinic. I'd been uh, uh, to, it was kind of a male offshoot clinic. I had been to four or five different places and nothing was available. And finally, uh, my, saw, my family saw the, what the commotion was and my dad came over. And uh, he introduced himself as John Grostick, and he said, I want to see this young man in my office tomorrow. You pick him up and bring him there. And Dad, oh, no. They argued for the longest time. <laughs> Finally, my dad, okay, I'll see what happens. We've tried everything else, and they claim there's no hope. I had even, one time I had... A, a tremendous swelling in my neck shortly after the accident happened and uh, University of Michigan 
made a quite a slit in my neck and uh, couldn't find anything to do. They thought maybe there was an abscess forming or something like that, but they no more opened it up and then uh, everybody took a look at it. Nothing they could see or do and stitched it back up and that was the end of that. But anyway, finally my dad took me on Monday into Grostick office and it was wasn't much of an office, very simple. And um, he had a, a kind of an old antique x-ray. I never did find out where he got it from. And uh, took an x-ray and finally he says, I, I think it's in his neck and that's where, where we're going to adjust. And after he adjusted it, it wasn't but seconds that I started getting impulses and pain. I had so much pain, my legs started acting like frog legs in a frying pan. Mm. I couldn't control my dad. And my mother was there too. They begged and pleaded, isn't there anything? Can you give him a shot? So we called, um, I think it was Uncle Herbert, and get some medication here. And Grastic said, don't you dare. Said, this is what he's been needing for all this time. Wow. And uh, there's been pressure on the spinal cord. The pressure's been released, and life is getting through there again. He had an awful time with them. And finally, um, they did put some compresses on me, which seemed to settle me down a little bit. And I didn't have another adjustment for two days. About seven days, I had gained enough strength that was able to stand. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> when it came Saturday, I got my wagon and my dog, and and I was on, I had crutches then, and uh, my dad took me down to a, a place back in Ann Arbor. In those days, Saturday night, the stores were all open. All the farmers came in town. And I had my wagon with my newspapers, and everybody was just amazed when they saw me standing there. Mm. They'd seen me for over two, almost two and a half years. And um, I'll tell you that I, I think I knew every patient that John Grostick had then for mm. the next six months or year or so. There were people that had seen me on the corner there. And uh, so this is, right then I felt, you know, uh, this is something that I want to do, and um, that young, yeah, that's great. And uh, so it, I, I've had some fantastic experiences along the way, and some of the things that have happened have, have just been phenomenal. Uh, uh, my wife when when I got old enough to to go to Palmer, I should do say that first before I talk about my wife and um I was pretty young and uh, it was depression days, you know, and just so hard to make a nickel and finally i I wrote my folks a letter and I said, uh, I, I just need some financial help, and I can't find any enough work and go to school, too. About the best we could get in those days was uh, 
you worked for an hour for a meal. Mm-hmm. That was it. Wow. If you were lucky, you might get 10 cents. Uh, but anyway, um, I wrote the letter to my folks, and they said, well, you're so young. Uh, we know that this basic science that they have in Michigan has got you pretty worried, and you want to get it over with as fast as you can, learn as much as you can, but you're so young. Uh, maybe you should just stop and come back and your old boss that you did work for has offered to put you on and uh, he's maybe he'd make as much as uh, 50 cents an hour. Well, anyway, I took the letter and took it over to the BJ clinic and asked Amy if she would give this to BJ and I want advice from him. And she uh, said, yeah, and I'll get in touch with you when whatever he says. So they set a time for me the next day. And I went, left my class and went over there to BJ Clinic. And they, Amy told me to go in. And I went in his office. And he was typing on the typewriter. And his typewriter was an old Underwood. And it had a great big roll of paper on it. Not, he didn't use a sheet. He probably had 200 feet of paper that he could write on. And uh, he didn't turn around anything, and finally I cleared my throat. And he said, yes. I said, you received my letter that my folks sent? Yeah, they want me to, because I'm young, to come home and go to work and save some money. And, and I said, I'd like your opinion. And he says, does Mother Nature stop corn growing in the middle of the summer to take a rest? And I said, no. He never said another word. Never turned around, never said anything. And so I left, and I never left school. Mm. I left his office then, but I never left school. It was quite a great experience. And uh, in I, fact, that was by the time I graduated from Palmer, BJ presented me with my diploma. And uh, as I walked across the stage behind the curtain was Amy, and she reached over and took my diploma away from me. She said, when you grow up, come back and get it. <laughs> but uh, how old were you when I then? Yes, when when she took the diploma from you. Uh, let's see, eighteen, I think. Oh wow! Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you uh, about uh, Dr. Grostick's clinic. Do you remember as uh, exactly uh, where it was located in Ann Arbor? Do you remember the address? No, I don't remember the address. I know that it was on. South Main Street. Mm-hmm. I can remember that part. I remember the the building. Uh, there was a music store below. Was it was it always in the same place, or did he? Uh, no. Eventually, he bought my grandmother's house mm. on Huron Street, and um, had his offices in there. But it was nothing. It was very plain. Not much of anything. In fact, the one over the music store that where I say my life was saved and I had just hundreds of people that went to him because of, of me. Um, it, it was a three room and the middle room was the reception room. And his x-ray was on one side and adjusting on the other. Oh, wow. If you wanted an x-ray, you had to walk through the reception room. Uh, if there was patients there, well, that was just the way it was. Sure. And... Uh, 
his adjusting room. It was one great big room, but he partitioned it off into a, a little, but the, there was a window, corner window, and that's where he had his desk and, and um, uh, interviewed people, talk, took his case history and so on. Right. He didn't ever have any help. Uh, he, he had the near, eventually he had the near calligraph, right where people would come in the adjusting room and he checked, he checked by pattern with the neurocalligraph more than anything else. Uh, his lead checks, yes, he used the lead check uh, pre and post, but the, the pattern of the neurocalligraph, he seemed to be uh, more fixed on that, more satisfied with it. Uh, what, was, he t was he doing the... Because, you know, you said when you met him uh, on the river in the canoe that he had just opened his practice. He had just graduated. At that time, was he uh, practicing the uh, refined technique that Grostic technique had become, or was he uh, doing... No, he was, he was working on it. He, he actually started to work on that in school. When, or after, after school, he developed a problem, and um, it was a... I think it had started, if I remember right, from a mastoid infection. And he went back to the BJ clinic and was adjusted specifically there. And the thing that motivated him was, if I need another adjustment, uh, what can I tell somebody nearby how to adjust it? Well, then that motivated him to think about what can he do? in analysis of an x-ray from a mathematical standpoint, but he, he had an engineering background. If, if I can come up with a formula and give it to somebody else, they should be able to duplicate that. So the idea, that's where the, the, the Grostic listings became because it was so specific. If it was a right two anterior one um, with a superior um, toggle. Somebody else that had the same training should be able to give that adjustment. Right. And uh, So when he adjusted you at 14, uh, was it a like a, an HIO adjustment or was it a... a yeah, that that was pretty much an HIO adjustment. Yes. Wow. Did he adjust anything else at that time? No. Never. Wow. He never adjusted me on anything else. Wow. Uh, the only one that did was Dr. Sherman when I got to Palmer, and Dr. Sherman was the one they named the Sherman College of Straight Chiropractic for. Right. And uh, he was a great man too, but he adjusted. Hmm, he had a, he had a pretty big he had like something like eighty eighty five percent results in the BJ clinic and and he adjusted mostly axis from a knee posture position. Hmm. Doctor Sherman did. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is the the one thing that I've always hoped for was when I would refer a patient to somebody else that. If they had to have the x-rays, okay, fine. But if I didn't have to monkey with that and I could just write out a listing uh, that they could understand 
So this is one of the things that I always tried to do is to find somebody that had the, the training. And this is one of the things that I would hope for eventually, that all, all uh, techniques, of anything that has happened to motivate a chiropractor to do a thing, where do you learn the technique and can it be certified? Uh, I admire, admire the, the medics for the different program. If a, if a man has, was certified in pathology as a specialist, you knew what you could expect from him. Mm-hmm. If he was a, a certified internist, you knew that he'd had more training and received the certification from a group of, of uh, doctors that had come up with the, the they felt was the right questions to ask to see if the person really understood certain things, then they could say that, well, he was certified. This, it's terrible. I think about here in my area, I was having a hard time finding a, a good upper cervical doctor and so I thought well I'll check and see are there NUCA people and uh, I knew about NUCA from Ralph Gregory who pushed it so hard and he was in my class graduated with me and uh, I still think that he wore John Grostick out and that's what caused Grostick's heart attack <laughs> he'd call him up at night <laughs> at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning bed and plead for him to come down to Monroe and adjust him. Oh, man. And John would do it. It would just wore him right out. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, anyway, uh, we, uh, this idea of a certification, I think, can be, control a lot of things. Uh, when I called for Nuka here, they said, yeah, there's one right here in, in Youngtown. So I called and checked with him, and I said, you're a Nuka man? Yep. Um, I'd like to be checked. Well, come over here, and we'll... And and no one walked in, and and he he didn't... His appearance was not all that great. He did have a receptionist with a computer that looked like she was capable of operating that. And right away he told me, he said, your face is so red that... Uh, you need um, this and that vitamin and you need something else and so on and I said I need an adjustment okay come out here and we'll take some x-rays his equipment was broken down should have been thrown away instead of a any kind of a decent alignment chair for specific analysis it was an old broken down office chair secretarial chair um, it, it, it was just pathetic. And so I said, I'll pay you for this stuff, and I'm getting out of here. His, I looked at his side posture table that he did his nuca work on. It was so dirty, I don't think a patient had been on it for months. Mm. It was cobwebs were even hanging on it. Mm. And uh, he charged me $225 for three x-rays, and, wow. and uh, which I never got even. Oh man! But, yeah, but, uh, it, it's it's pathetic what our profession does get away with. 
they say one thing and do something else. And I've been very grateful in that there's been some guidance for me. In fact, I've, I've got to tell you about one of my patients that I had developed just before I just got my license in Michigan and we hadn't been married very long. Elsie come from a long line of, of Germans. Uh, there was five German sisters with their election or parents that came from Germany at the same time. There was five Stebno boys that came with their parents from Germany. They both landed in the Detroit area and this was just before World War One, and uh, the five boys married the five girls. Mm. And you saw my wife, well, you saw, you knew there was at least one or two more like her, and they all had big families. Uh, my wife's family was 10 kids, mm. and most of them were gone. My wife died two years ago, oh. and you, she was 90. We were married 66 years when she passed away. We, we were just getting ready to start de developing a practice in Jackson and I had been helping out um, to make a little extra money working at King Sealy and the day, just about the day I was ready to quit uh, a fellow came to me who was the head electrician and he said my son was in a serious automobile accident and crashed and he fractured every bone in his head and face and his left femur. And they've done a good job for him at the University of Michigan. And they sent him home uh, from the hospital. I don't know, I don't remember how many days. It was just a few days uh, before he's talking to me and told him to exercise every day with that femur. And the first day he started to exercise, it locked on him. It locked in an L shape. Ooh. And they took him back to the University of Michigan and they said, oh my God, he's got osteomyelitis in every bone in his body. He don't have a chance. What we've got to do is put him in a, a cast and, and uh, hope that it'll hold together for a while. But he's going to die from this. The father came to me and he says, what in the world am I going to do? They gave up instantly. I said, well, take him up to Grostick and if you can get in there and get some x-rays. And uh, and I was going on to Jackson, which is 35 miles from, from uh, uh, Ann Arbor. And anyway, Grostick called me. He said, don't you dare touch him. He said, it's just ready to collapse not a chance so the father said what else is there to do I said well the greatest is at the BJ clinic at Palmer College of Chiropractic well this was in August homecoming time but um, the family said if there's hope let's do it well they had to go through so much there wasn't super highways then, and there was there wasn't any air service worth a darn, and uh, so they finally got permission from Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, I guess it was Illinois and Iowa to 
put him in a hammock in a small house trailer, and he had they had to have beacon lights on it, and drive him to Devonport that way. Well, after four days going through the things at BJ Clinic, they told BJ, "Don't touch it. Stay away from it." So the family came home pretty bitter because they'd spent a year's income, $10,000, and got nothing for it. And finally the father got in touch with me uh, not too many, a month later, I guess it was, or six weeks, something like that. And he said, Arlie's dying, but if you really believe that hard bone is pressing on those soft nerves. Because I said, "Look at me! I'm standing and walking." Yeah. Come, we've gone. We've gone to a lawyer. We got a document made. We will not hold you responsible if anything should happen. Do what you have to do to Arlie. I said, "Everybody says no, but I'm too dumb to know. No, I shouldn't." So I get to the house. The bed sores are so smelly, you can smell him outdoors almost. And they had him upstairs. And I went upstairs and I asked for a book, put a towel around it, put it under his head, turned his head towards me. And I never prayed so hard in my life. As I took a contact and I'm visualizing, as I'm praying, I'm visualizing the direction that I have to give this. I never adjusted him, but all of a sudden you could hear that clean across the room, that Atlas moved. Hmm. I jumped back. I was scared stiff. Look at him. He just smiled at me. Thanksgiving. He was up having turkey dinner with the family. Christmas, he was down under the Christmas tree. It was Pearl Harbor time. I went into service and <clears throat> turned him over to Grassley and, and some other patients, of course, that wanted to go to Ann Arbor and have care. And once at Great Lakes, I was in charge of uh, seeing that somebody came in and cleaned the officers' quarters. And so every Friday, when I needed a crew, I would call what they called Building N, and that's where they everybody was examined for the Navy, and the rechecks were set aside, and they were they would work them if they could, uh, doing something. And I called for 20 men, and they sent 20 up. I got them in line and I'm telling them what I want them to do, polish the floors or scrub or whatever. And here's Arlie standing there. Mm. <laughs> Arlie, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> My God, it was just, you know, less than a year ago mm. that you were in that cast. It was such a mess. And he said, we got this far and finally found the all the things I've been through, and they said, go on home, we don't want you. <laughs> and uh, that, that's that been one of the miracles in my life that, that has always been uh, such a charge. You know, all I have to do is think about some of those things, and I, 
everything is just fantastic then. And I, I honestly believe, and most chiropractors, when I say this, think I'm nuts. I honestly believe that when Christ laid his hands on them, he gave an adjustment. Not a physical adjustment, but at least an innate adjustment. Mm. I didn't adjust Arlie's neck when it moved. Yeah. My hand, I'm sure that I was trembling because I was so darn frightened of what I was doing. And I mean, I was really praying hard. And every single time in my practice, when I came across it, something that was real tough like that, I prayed and I prayed hard. And I strongly believe, along with a young fellow by the name of Alex Politis, who graduated with me, he's down in the Virgin Islands, and he's working on innate adjustments, too. And um, some of the things that we'd, we'd have, we used to have workshops with John Grostick. Gregory was involved in those, too. And and we all try to program our office hours to where we could get to Ann Arbor and, and uh, see what John was working, anything new, and uh, if we could add to it. And we played a dirty trick one time. We x-rayed uh, one of the chiropractor's wives. Um, she'd had some kind of a problem. And... John adjusted her and then post x-rayed her and it was a beautiful correction in the meantime we the, the, the gals were doing something at Grostick's house <laughs> of all things he had bought the house for my uncle and uh, well anyway it was a a Saturday I remember and, and, and Saturday in Ann Arbor the noon the the fire department big old whistle went off and you'd know that it was Saturday noon uh, during this time one of the guys I don't remember which one it was called Grostick's home and asked for this woman who had been x-rayed just a few hours before and said there's been an accident and your husband's not in too good a shape we're going to come and get you well, I remember Gregory was involved with it and a couple other guys and myself, and they got this gal brought her back to Grostick's office and re-X-rayed her. You couldn't imagine the subluxation he, she had. It was a, the mental tension that developed from being told her husband had been injured. Um... I think they laid it down pretty heavy. But the, the spine was horrible, unbelievable. You'd think she'd been hit by a Mack truck. Huh. So, and all she had gotten was some bad news. Yep. Wow. Structure governs function. Mm -hmm. That's is true today and will be a million years from now. Mm -hmm. This is where my analyzer came in, uh, getting involved with, with industry. We found that when there was a structural deviation, 
in one measurement of five degrees or more, you could mark with the skin pencil where the deviation was and have the person go out and do anything until they became tired. Bring them back, ask them where they hurt, and they put their finger right where you put the pencil mark. So industry started giving me uh, uh, information as to requirements of a job. And the job would require the person to do this, 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 and so on. So we find that their greatest stress on that particular job, would, let's say it'd be the right shoulder, and if you analyze them with with the, the structural stress analyzer, that the if the shoulder showed a stress of five or more, you knew that person's going to break down before they become a disability before they even hardly got working. So this is the you might I suppose you'd call it theory, but it's it's not a theory. It, it, it's just a solid truth that structure governs function. Mm -hmm. And finally, I built up a practice of 28 industries that uh, used my services and predetermined if a person was qualified to do certain jobs. And it worked so really good. This was... Uh... And, and, and your friend there said that he wanted to know if analyzers were, were available. Uh, Finally, I had an engineer here in, in the Phoenix area who helped me structurally rebuild it to where it was very stable and reliable. And any one person could use it and get the same answer each and every time. And that, that's been taken over by Dr. Wayne Henry Zamelka. Uh, he's at Palmer College. And uh, he calls his business a multiple interest service company. And uh, he's at Davenport, Iowa, at Palmer College. Or his business address is uh, 44 Lakewood Park, 7171 West 60th Street, Davenport, Iowa, 52804. I... I wish I'd have known just a few weeks ago uh, that um, uh, Dr. Wiedemann wanted an analyzer because I gave my last one away. Oh. <laughs> and, well, uh, the name, uh, just real quick, uh, Dr. Zamelka's company, you said it's multiple service. Yes. Multiple service what? Pardon? Uh, what, what's the full name of the company, multiple service? Multiple interest. Services company. Okay, multiple endos. Okay. I'm real sure he's still teaching there. Uh, if the, the uh, telephone number is uh, area three one nine three eight six three four one four. Okay. Could you uh, this? Could you describe the device? Uh, because I've I've not heard of. Uh, uh, I, I've not heard of it before, the gravity stress analyzer. Yeah. Um, could you describe it? I changed it to structural stress. Uh, actually, it's a screen. What, how, how it came about, 
on the farm, my dad would say, hey, today we're going to build fence. Mm-hmm. And I want to start the fence right here. And he'd plant the post. Now he said, I want to line it up with our neighbor's tree, which is a quarter of a mile away, you might say. Okay. Then he'd send me down the field with the next post, and he'd get behind the one that he had just planted and superimpose it over the tree, and then he'd have me walk in with the post, and when he'd holler at me, that meant that he couldn't see my post. It was superimposed now over the one that he was looking at, at the tree. Mm-hmm. And then we would plant that. And go down through the field, and you'd think that we had laser beam. <laughs> it would just be, you get behind the first post, and every one of them would be right in line with the tree. Wow. So this was the idea. Have a screen with double lines on it. You'd have to have something on the patient's head with a mirror. So we had calipers, and we used the the calipers we had were the length of an adult spine, and it had two arms on it. One arm was an inch and a quarter longer than the other, because the the seventh cervical, or first thoracic, is about one inch to an inch and a quarter ahead, or I suppose you'd say anterior, to the fifth lumbar, to be absolutely straight up and down. Well, anyway, the calipers have a mirror in the middle, and we put that on the patient's head, and bring the, 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 the little arms on the side up tight to the head, not painfully tight, but up snugly to the head, just ahead of the ears. You look. You raise the screen up so you're looking through the screen in the mirror. If you can't see the center plumb line, then you turn the screen till you do, till they're all in superimposed. Now your screen has two sets of lines on it. You see those in the mirror. Now where the screen had been turned, there's a graph underneath and you see how many degrees you had to move to get those superimposed. Then you can take, since the screen has a plumb bob on it, you take the whole screen and tip it to fit the angle or level of the protractor like that was on the head. Mm-hmm. Or if you put the protractor on the shoulders and then you tip the screen uh, to the right or left, if necessary, to, to get those superimposed lined up with each other. And your plumb bob would fall over a designated measuring screen that would tell how many degrees the shoulder has dropped or how many degrees it has rotated. So you have nine listings. You, you have the C7, um, L5, level of head, Level and rotation of head, level of shoulders, rotation, level of pelvis, and rotation. So you and I have nine basic measurements. Um, a perfect spine, perfect posture, 
might say, is zero all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a scattered zero to five can be pretty normal, slightly changed with just a little exercise or breathing, um, s- sitting too much or, or whatnot. But basically, this is what the, the analyzer does. Uh, I might even have, I don't think I have any material left anymore, but um, Zemelka, I'm sure, has things, and he calls it the, uh, he's had them remanufactured in Devonport now, though I understand. I haven't heard from him in a while. Mm. But um, it has been very useful. I've used it. This has gotten me involved with the United Nations, hmm. and I have presented papers through the International Labor Organization and International Social Security, and they've had me present these papers along with an analyzer in, in um, Ireland, Romania, uh, the Netherlands, England, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, I've been a lot of places with it. Hmm. So, um, and this would basically the, the, this would show you um, the improper structure of the person, right? And it would allow you to predict uh, basically how they would break down. Uh, yeah, or if you gave the proper adjustment mm-hmm. instantly, that should change to set them up, measure them the same way again, and it's, the problem shouldn't be there mm-hmm. from a structural standpoint. Mm-hmm. That's why I say we structure governs the function. Right. You you give the adjustment, and if it's a proper adjustment, it'll clear it right out. Mm-hmm. Now, if there's a a functional discrepancy because of a let's say an old fracture. Or if the head of the femur has worn uh, smooth because of age, or, or if there's been a tubercular problem in the bone structure, um, you don't see any change in one particular area, then you can investigate. And, uh, and many a time, I had some orthopedic doctors that worked with me on that, and. Uh, I wish that I had gotten a hold of one of the books. One of the doctors had uh, written in the book of the, the pathological changes in in structure. When we use this analysis, and so between X-ray and and the structural stress analyzer, you can pretty well determine if a person is going to be able to do uh, required. Uh, work or, or whatnot, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's it's so interesting. I hate to get old. <laughs> I'm sure getting there. Well, uh, what, how how did you use your uh, findings uh, subjectively uh, so that uh, you know you when you present the information to the company was it purely uh, the doctor's opinion based on his findings or was it presented in a report to where the company could understand okay I see what your findings are this makes sense we I, can't hire this person we, we, I had some st- 
standard letters that they used of rejection or acceptability. Mm. And uh, these, every once in a while, they used to try to get the industry together in case there was some new development or, or a change that I might consider. Um, it, 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 I, I never had any industry who questioned what my decision was. I'll never forget one time uh, a young fellow was sent to me to do a a, a, a pre-employment physical and, and examination and we found so much stress in the shoulder and I found a, a saber scar on the right shoulder and found out that he'd been in a motorcycle accident in Cleveland and uh, was taken care of at the Cleveland Clinic and not too long before that and the, the scar didn't look too good even it, you know it was it, you could tell it was quite fresh well anyway i rejected him and he got violent mm. and i said i'm sorry it something happened I, and you haven't told me the whole story about the shoulder but there's a problem there and i'm not going to ask this employer to accept you because of workman's comp and it was a fair forging machine company and before I started with LaFerre Forge, their workman's comp had increased five times the monthly charges because of the high incident of injury. And uh, thank goodness by the time I finished with them, they're self-insured now and have been for all these years, 30, oh, 35 years at least now. How did you well, anyway, but uh, anyway, this young fella got violently mad and he said well what the hell why don't you call the doctor that took care of me at the Cleveland Clinic and uh, so I said well he threw a, I think he threw a ten dollar bill in the receptionist area and one of the girls went and picked it up he said call him I said give me his name and what not we'll, we'll, we'll call him if it'll help you so we called Cleveland Clinic and I said, I thought, well, we'll never be able to get a hold of the doctor. But where the call came in, uh, the doctor just happened to be standing right there. And so I, I told him the story. And he says, you know, I remember that. It wasn't too long ago. The wound, it, it had ripped the shoulder open. And the wound had been exposed to air way too long and he said I knew something was going to happen and he said if he shows this much stress and you said his blood pressure was elevated and I said extensively and he said well you did the right thing in not ac accepting him he said you tell him to get to the hospital right away hmm. and I told him that and uh he did totally ignored me, but then the next day we read his name in the paper. He was dead. Wow. So. How did you even get the idea to approach these industries with this service? <laughs> you know, this is, this is by the, because of medical doctors. 
the Fairfortune Machine Company was the first one. Uh, I, I should I should take that back. Uh, Culligan Water Conditioning was the first one. The original people who started Culligan Water Company was a man and wife team. She filled the tanks and he carried them in the back of an old Plymouth and, and delivered them. And he developed the back problem and I don't remember for sure why he came to me except that he was just starting in practice. And I told him, I said, look, you keep to take care of this lifting business. Your back will not take it. You're going to be crippled. And uh, the name was Norm Kress. And Norm uh, took my advice, and he got somebody else to do the lifting, and he did the directing. And they, that's now Culligan Water Conditioning. They're both dead multimillionaires. Yeah, this is the original Culligan man. You were his chiropractor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway... Um, I come out of service, and some of the first patients that I had were from Lafayette Forge. And I didn't know why, but the first two or three or four of them, I said, how did you ever get a job at, at Lafayette Forge? I said, you, you've got birth, well, there were birth defects, uh, spondylolisthesis and things like that. Anyway, I finally called the personnel director one day and I said, there's something wrong here. I understand that you do have all of your employees that you hire go through a physical and x-ray exam. Yeah, well, I said, I've got, I I think at that time I either had four or five. And I said, if they were examined, the the doctors didn't look at them. Mm. I said, all of them have got serious problems, and and you're just stuck with them now. Mm. Uh, So come up, and I'll show them to you. So the personnel man came up, and I showed him, and he said, there's something fishy here. I I knew the medical doctor was doing their physicals, and he was a very honorable man. The man who did the x-ray work was a pistol. He was the secretary of the medical association. Any time he could bury a chiropractor, he would. Mm. Anyway, we found out finally by really interrogating these employees that old Porter would tell them, hey, you can't go to work there. Your back is this or that, whatever it was. And then they, oh my God, we need the work. We gotta have the work. Hey, 50 bucks, I'll tell them you're okay. Mm. And that's how I got started with LaFear Forge. Wow. The other companies just, well, it's like the guys go out on weekends to play golf and get to the country club and so on, and they get in the locker room and tell them about their problems and so on, and they'd say, we're using Allen because of this and that and so on. And I finally built that up to 28 companies, and um, they're still going there. Hey, I have a question from uh, Dr. Wiedemann concerning that. He says that uh, he remembers you telling about uh, um, your uh, industrial pre-screening programs and how one company had a death rate of five per year because the men had to walk along a walkway over some vats. Yeah, and, you wrote that, and, yeah. and I, I don't know where that story came from. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was LaFerre Forge and Machine Company that had 
uh, average of five deaths a year. Mm. And that's why their workman's comp was so high. Mm. And uh, it, it just was, they had hired the wrong people uh, due to medical failures in, 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 in stopping the people from going there. Uh, this porter guy on the x-ray business was responsible for all the faults there. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there was many, many different things that happened. The, the ones with the VAT that you were talking about, that was another company. And there had been only uh, two, I think, that had slipped and fell into the VATs. Okay. And uh, they're so- pathetic. So that was statistics from two different companies then? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, I got it. Um, one of the things that you ask is, what's a dream patient? The only dream patient I ever really thought about was the one who got so enthused with chiropractic and understanding it that they brought in their whole family or referred their neighbors the person who constantly refers. And uh, we wound up with, I think in my practice, I wound up with a little better than 60,000 patients over a time. And uh, uh, that's a good sized town. (laughs) 60. Another thing, you said, what did you love about being a chiropractor? I think the will to believe that Christ, when he laid his hands upon him, he gave an adjustment, an innate adjustment, something that happened, and I think it can still come. My, My classmate who's down in the Virgin Islands, he believes it too. Um... I don't know, have you ever laid your hands on a patient and just concentrate and meditate, prayer, whatever, and feel that you knew exactly what to do then and adjust and get the results? I have, it sounds far-fetched when you think of the cervical movement the atlas and axis and so on, but it, it, it's possible to eventually feel in the innate presence of what needs to be done. There's a number of things that we need to know as chiropractors in dealing with people. The, the ergonomics of the the, the thing that they do for work. Um, we're, we're a country who built everything the same. All chairs are the same height, you might say. Tables are all the same. As if everybody was the same, and we're not. It needs to be adjusted accordingly. It's just like handiness. The, the work, almost everything that is useful as a tool is built for a right-handed person. If you're left-handed, you're going to be having problems. You're going to be have a lot of injuries if you have to use tools and you're left-handed because they just aren't made for left-handed people. 
uh, you get into an automobile. That automobile is 100% geared and operated for right-handed people. Mm-hmm. And left-handed people have to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the mental crossover in the brain can handle it, okay, fine. But under stress, maybe they can't. So the, uh, these are some of the things that we need to understand. We, uh, uh, Hugh Logan, uh, I became very interested in, in Logan techniques too uh, because of Vint. He was a great guy. But his father, who started Logan College, used to say, monkeys have more sense than men because sometimes they hang by the other end. <laughs> in other words, reverse in gravity. Yeah. Well, you stop and think of bat, for example. Now, a bat is warm-blooded like we are, lives on a total cholesterol diet, hibernates, and we can't even miss a meal. <laughs> and, and still they live about five times longer than we do. Why? Well... In my bedroom, there's a slant board, which is 18 inches higher at the foot end than the head end. And every day, I at least got 15 minutes in there on that slant board, reversing gravity. You stop and think, when you listen to a baby's heart, you've got this little baby of yours, listen to the heart, it's way high in the chest. About the time they start to school, it has moved down almost the the length of the heart itself and they get into sports and the high school and cross country running and things like that and the heart has moved down you get into Sun City here now with all us old fogies and you, you start listening to the apex of the heart be clean around the left side of the rib cage uh, because of gravity so if we can reverse gravity on a regular basis we can help a heck of a lot of people. The, the, the um, lifestyles make a big difference. I always was just sick about losing John Grostics at such an early age. and uh, But Gregory didn't help when he'd keep bothering him all the time, get him up in the middle of the night, come and adjust him. And so on, but he was aggressive with a heavy, heavy smoker, mm. and um, it just doesn't work. Yeah. So. Well, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, a, a little more about uh, B.J. Palmer. Um, did you have? Uh, were you ever adjusted by him? No. You never were. No, I never was. I, I got some pictures of him adjusting some of my. Uh, classmates and uh, he was a hippie you know his hair was down to his shoulders yeah and when he gave a toggle i mean that hair was flying all over the place yeah. and uh, uh well did you when you uh, graduated from school did you ever actually do any training or working with dr grostick after school uh we we used to have workshops um oh let's see we I spent a week in one of his seminars, and then we decided some of the things, it was so hard to make a pattern change in your adjusting, 
that we started having workshops uh, at least every other week on a Thursday uh, in in Ann Arbor there, and um, well, we had guys from Detroit and Ypsilanti and all around Lower Michigan there that would would come, and uh, I don't know, it was it was good, and I needed it, and that's why when when he passed away, it just about tore me apart. When you say pattern changes, do you mean the neurocalometer, that pattern? Um, he used neurocalligraph pattern. Uh-huh. That actually fed a piece of paper through and giving a, a, a pattern. You didn't have to, in neurocalometer, you could do pattern if you could remember what you saw on the dial. Oh, okay. And... Uh, well, what, what were his feelings on using the neurocalligraph as compared to the leg check? Um, I really don't, I don't think I know. I don't think he, I, I, I can ever recall of him uh, saying anything about it. Uh, you mentioned the tempometer too, and uh, I don't remember him saying anything about that. I know that he was very adamant about his belief in when you adjusted the person they got well it was only one thing that got them well and that was removing the pressure on the nerve it wasn't vitamins it wasn't any kind of therapy uh, it wasn't any spiritualistic thing it, it was the, the, the physical adjustment and um, he was pretty emphatic about that. You had uh, mentioned going or uh, trying to go to uh, one Nuka chiropractor there. Do you have an upper cervical doctor now uh, there in Arizona at all? No, I don't. I've um, I've been going over to the Gunstead boys. Mm. Uh, got two Gunstead boys over here that are pretty darn good, and they've had special. Uh, uh, training in the Gonstead technique. Clarence Gonstead was a great man. I, I, I just thought the world of him in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was so good that people f- would fly in from all over. Uh, he built a motel there. He built an airport. Mm-hmm. Then he built an, a, a motel to keep the people there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would say, um, find a subluxation adjust it and leave it alone yeah he was emphatic about that he was quite a guy and so was his wife if you were practicing now how do you think you would do it what technique would you use and uh, would you just would you be I, i would imagine based on what you said you'd be a straight chiropractor would you bother with insurance or would you just be all cash how do you think you'd do it you know the things have changed so much in the last 30 years that I don't know what I would really do. I think I could, if I had the time and I could support anything I said, I wouldn't say anything unless I could support it. If I could find a, a cause to give an adjustment, to balance that spine, to relieve that nerve interference, to let that innate function 
I don't know what the technique would be, really. Um, it, it would have to be just Larry Allen, I guess. <laughs> but I've found, <laughs> you know, so often chiropractors, when they have a patient that doesn't get the result, they, well, what MD do I send them to? <laughs> Why not send them to another chiropractor? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and, and I'll never forget, I had I had five doctors at one time in my clinic. We had one patient, had been, poor guy had been pitched from one to the other, and I was the last one, no results. Uh, a friend chiropractor who practiced on the far end of town used to stop in every once in a while. He was always borrowing film or need an adjustment or something. Anyway, he'd come in this one day, I said, Tom, would you take this patient and see what you can do? I said, all five of us have been working with him. So Tom took him, one adjustment, everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the technique, there's something in that hand, you know. Mm. All of us, we thought we were given the same adjustment, mm. but we were short on one thing. Mm. And the excuse that a couple of the guys in the office made was that um, that was just ready for the patient anyhow. The patient would have responded to the next adjustment. Yeah, that's what we all say. Yeah. <laughs> what is your opinion on instrument adjusting? Uh, I think it has great possibilities. Really, I, I, I get enthused when I hear about it because to me, uh, if John Grostick were living and you could show him, I'm, I'm sure he would approve of it. Uh, the, the instrument can, from a technique standpoint, be much more precision than your hands. Uh, well, even, <laughs> we used to, at, at Palmer, I can remember as a student, we used to palpate especially the transverse of the atlas, and take an x-ray, it wouldn't even be on the transverse. Mm. And so if, if we're that far off and you can take an instrument and get it aligned to, to perform the perfect adjustment, I think it'd be great. What was your biggest disappointment uh, in your practice, uh, and what would you have done to prevent its reoccurrence? Uh, you know, when my daughter and son-in-law came over yesterday, they said, uh, how's the question? And I said, I've got one that's kind of getting to me. And what's my biggest disappointment? And uh, <laughs> my daughter said, it's just, I think it was your son-in-law. <laughs> she went to Palmer and uh, married a student when she was in school, and he was from Fresno, California. And the guy just turned out to be a bum. And it, it was a hard sick. They finally divorced. He walked out on her when she had these, the second little boy, who is now 22, 22 and a half. And uh, her boys, both her boys are six foot seven. Wow. And uh, the one 
Well, the one is married, the oldest one's married. He and his wife left this morning for San Diego. They're going to vacation for a week there. But, uh, he's um, He went to uh, NAU and graduated in a major in history, and but he's now running the uh, American Express Insurance Company. Hmm. He does all the claims work for him and does all the arguing with, with lawyers and so on the youngest grandson is uh, he's got two years left of college he wants to be a, a history teacher and uh, he what? thought he wanted to he thought gee maybe I should change and, and be a medical doctor and they said $200,000 <laughs> to get through school anymore Yeah. so what do you regard as your greatest chiropractic achievement? Oh, uh, I think when I was invited to appear before the United Nations and present papers, uh, and especially, I'll never forget when I was asked to come to Bucharest, Romania, they were just recovering from a very serious earthquake. And... Uh, they they had assigned a, a, a an interpreter, a beautiful young girl who had five languages under her belt, and we would talk. and And my wife was with me, and we'd discuss about the the hardships of this earthquake, what had happened. And finally, uh, one day, she said, "The some of the research people from there was a hundred and." 20 nations, I think, there, they would like to see you um, do what you do in your practice, besides this paper that I presented. And so I finally agreed I would think about it and, and agreed to do it. And we got into this convention center. There was about 2,000 in there. And uh, the minute I started to examine this person who had concrete had fell on him, and he had been uh, almost inability, not having the ability to walk, it shook him up so much. But they didn't find any x-ray damage to the spine or the pelvis. And uh, anyway... After my examination, and, and I, I had an analyzer with me because they wanted to see the demonstration and wanted me to teach it for a while at the Stefan Academy in Bucharest. And so I, I checked this man, and I finally gave him an adjustment, and the results were, you might say, took me right back to when I had my first one from John Grostick. And this guy was an orthopedic surgeon hmm. and the father of the young lady who was my interpreter. Hmm. And he still, I still hear from him. Uh, in fact, the last time we heard from him, uh, his daughter had to write because he he's getting old like me hmm. and he's having difficulty writing. But he had almost instant results from the adjustment. So... Being able to present chiropractic so many times 
to the International Labor Society and the International Social Security people uh, has been um, a, a real ego trip, you might say. Uh, but it still goes back uh, to some of the things that B.J. used to say. You know, uh, I get I I I have put this down. Maybe you guys might like it. I've finished. I've worked on it for years, and I finally finished it about oh two three months ago. And it reads now. First, I've got the hands in a, a adjusting position at the very top. It says along the Galilean sands, they felt his helping, healing hands, the soothing touch that stilled their pain and made them well and whole again. They nailed those hands upon a cross. It was their own and not his loss. In that the world's darkest hour, they lost those hands of healing power. Here, Lord, I give my hands to you. So human, not at all divine, yet let me feel in all I do another greater hand on mine. Then, when I walked across the sands and stepped beyond the sun, oh, let me clasp your healing hands and hear the blessed's words, well done. That's beautiful. You want a copy? I'd love a copy. Well, doc, Dr. Allen, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'd like to. If you, do you have anything else that you'd like to say before uh, before we go? Oh, I can't think of anything right now. <laughs> you know, I have twenty twenty vision and hindsight sometimes. Sure. <laughs> well, again, it's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate you doing this. Oh, you've made my day. Oh, good. Okay. Well, you take care. Good luck, Bob. All right. Bye bye.